Hey, this is Jeremiah Lorenz. Welcome to The Hangar. Unfortunately, most men think the things that they are going through are impossible to overcome. Because we are isolated, we imagine that what we're facing is the worst life possible. Even worse, we blame ourselves for all of it. In spite of our best efforts, we just don't see a way out. Why? Because in masculine conversation, the dialogue about God and his power has disappeared. Men no longer understand what God is capable of. Through these men sharing their stories, our goal is to convince you that God is able and willing to do the impossible for his sons. The Hangar is where we begin to reclaim manhood. Welcome to The Hangar. Welcome back, Hangerman, to week two of the story of Jeremiah Lorenz. We're in a series now talking about the story of men's lives that have been to hell and back. Hopefully to encourage you, if you find yourself in that place where your life is hellacious, you're in the middle of a chaotic journey, that there is hope that you can make your way out. And if you missed part one of Jeremiah's story last week, I highly encourage you to pause this episode, go back and catch that because the next 30 minutes are going to make zero sense if you don't get the backstory. So Jeremiah, here we are picking up with part two of your story. Let me just express again, thank you for just your brutal honesty last week and sharing so many details about your life, basically rolling out for us that your story is dramatically different than a lot of men out there in the track tragedy entered your life very early and things didn't really slow down from that beginning point where you lost your mother, your brother finds her in the bathtub, your earliest childhood memory is losing her, having her rolled out uh, on the stretcher there, seeing her very descriptive memory here of seeing her wet brown hair uh, there off the stretcher and things kind of spun out of control, your dad's inability to deal with that tragedy in a healthy way and we discussed a, a lot this relationship that you had with your brother that rolls in into your adulthood where you guys have this unique special bond with one another where he serves as basically this father figure for you as this protector but both of you get into your adult life your early 20s your mid 20s and you're living out this pain of all of this tragedy that had been a part of your growing up and you're living it out in similar ways but somehow you're able to hold on to health in a way that you see your brother kind of taking that next step towards the bottom so I want to dive in here because in your own words, what you said is up until this point, we haven't even discussed the largest tragedy in your life. And with your permission, I'd like to go there, but maybe set the stage for us of seeing your brother deal with this um, father wound in a similar way that you did, but maybe to the next level. What did that look like for you and Josh? Once my brother, uh, you know, in his early 20s when he was in college and uh, he was he was he became really anxious and went to the doctor about his anxiety and you know they prescribed him uh xanax and once he discovered xanax uh he quickly became addicted to him and xanax and alcohol were his two best friends um and if anybody has ever mixed xanax and alcohol i mean it's it's bad news nothing good can come of it and um that set the tone for the rest of my brother's life uh, and leading up into my early and mid 20s to where, you know, say I was 24, 25, which made him, you know, 29, 30. 
um, you know, there were times I'd have to, uh, I had to drive from Hattiesburg all the way to New Orleans um, because I got a phone call that he had been arrested and he was in Orleans Parish Prison. And I'm like, dude, I saw you like 12 hours ago at your apartment in Hattiesburg. And, you know, how, what is going on? Um, and, you know, it, it, apparently he took a bunch of Xanax and drank a bunch of beer and drove to New Orleans because he thought that was a good idea and uh, threw beer cans at cops out his window. And, you know, they pulled him over and, you know, beat the crap out of him on the side of the road. And, uh, you know, that was just another thing. Like, that wasn't, in his mind, it wasn't, and even in my mind, it wasn't that big of a deal because that's the pattern of life that he was leading. Like, those things happened. Um, and it was all because he was trying to cover up this father wound. He was trying to fill that in that, you know, that, uh, that mother wound as well. He was always trying to fill those holes in his life. Uh, and unfortunately he filled them with, you know, with drugs and alcohol. And it, it got to a point, um, towards, uh, the end that it was just that it was the norm. Like, you know, every other day I would expect a phone call of something else crazy that he had done or some other trouble that he got into. And then it got to the point where every single day I was expecting a phone call of him being dead, killing himself somehow, either by a, a self-inflicted wound or getting in a car crash because he blacked out with Xanax or, you know, found himself somewhere and... Uh, not being able to control himself because of the drugs and alcohol and somebody, you know, killing him somehow, you know, in a fighter or, or whatever. Um, but at the same time where he was doing that, I was doing a lot of the same things, but I wasn't doing it to the extreme because my choice of drugs and alcohol didn't mix quite as bad as his. Uh, you know, what he chose to cover up with and with all the pain that he had went through with finding our mom dead and he was suffering more abuse uh, from my father's hand than I did. He had so much more pain than I did um, that he had to go off the deep end to cover up things, uh, to cover this pain up. And then, like I said, you know, anyone who, anyone who's listening to this podcast that has ever uh, covered up pain in their life with drugs and alcohol, they know the next morning is way worse than uh, that, that bit of sobriety when you first started feeling pain the day before when you started covering up. It only gets worse. That hole only gets deeper, um, and the pain only grows because not only do you – is that pain still there? Uh, you wake up in the morning, and you're like, man, like I did this, and I said this, and I did this to this person, and, you know, I'm a jerk, you know. So the pain only increases every day, and that's uh, that's something that him and I both wrestled with, but it got to the point with him where uh, he – he attempted suicide twice, um, woke up in the hospital, you know, with, uh, he attempted suicide with pills and, uh, you know, swallowing a bottle of pills and got his stomach pumped and, you know, pumped charcoal in you and all that kind of stuff, survived those. Uh, there were two or three times where, you know, three, 4 AM, uh, I got a phone call from him. He's like, this is it, Jeremiah, I'm done. I can't, you know, I can't stand this life anymore. I'm so miserable. I'm in so much pain. I just want to die. And, um, you know, those, those two, three, four times, well, four times that, uh, I answered those phone calls at, you know, three, four in the morning, 
um, I saved his life, you know, and he, he, he told me on more than one occasion that, you know, the only reason, you know, I'm not putting a gun to my head and pulling the triggers because I know how much it would hurt you. And I know how much it would hurt, uh, our, uh, our aunt TB, who was my mom's older sister. Um, so the pressure of being in this situation, experiencing all this tragedy in the beginning, Josh plays this father role for you. Mm-hmm. And in a sick twist of fate, you end up being the voice of reason for him. Absolutely. So the tragedy leads to more weight, to more pressure. You're trying to numb the pain. Successfully, you're numbing the pain for a short period of time. So is your brother. But you're placing this role where I can only imagine you go to bed each night thinking, will I get the phone call Uh, where I'm not speaking to my brother, I'm speaking to somebody about my brother. Absolutely. And that phone call happens. Walk us through that moment. Mm. Um, well, number one, as we're going through this walk, you're gonna have to be patient because, um, in all of my story, I can get through everything I've been through and, you know, all the pain, but, uh, talking about my brother's, uh, death is, it's pretty tough for me. So yeah, if I get emotional, y'all just be patient with me. Um, October... 31st, uh, 2012, it was probably about 10 30 PM, 11 PM. Um, and my brother at the time was living in, uh, Nederland, Texas, which is, uh, just outside of Houston. Um, just outside of the Beaumont area. Um, by this time he had, uh, three or four DUIs. Uh, he had a degree in psychology, so he was in the medical field. He liked doing that stuff, but uh, his ability to get a job in any kind of hospital, clinic, any of that was just, it was null and void. Like, there's no way he could do it because of all these DUIs. Um, so his job perspective was pretty slim. You know, and my brother was a very intelligent man, um, but he had thrown any opportunity that, any opportunity he had at success in life, you know, financially and, you know, buying a home and married and kids. He, he, he threw that away because of what, what decisions he made while he was, uh, intoxicated. So, uh, he one night was driving. I'm not, and I, no one knows. And I don't, I still to this day don't. He, somehow he was in, uh, he drove outside of Texas. He was going to Louisiana, uh, maybe the casino. I'm not sure. Just, I, I'm not hundred percent sure, but he went down kind of like off the beaten path on this like service road and down, uh, kind of by this river. And for whatever reason, there was like this kind of little hill ridge thing that basically if you wanted to, uh, what's the old show with the, with the orange and the two guys, Dukes, Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. Like if you wanted to Dukes of Hazard over this ridge, over the river, you could. Well, for whatever reason, my brother decided to do that. So he Dukes of Hazard over this river, jumps a river in his car, you know, slams down, you know, four wheels or whatever. But, uh, you know, his car was kind of busted up. Um, so he's sitting there thinking, I'm sitting here going through his thought process that he's sitting here thinking, man, like I have no opportunity to make a good living for myself. Um, I'm completely miserable every second I'm awake. Um, I do nothing but 
bring, you know, pain and anguish in, in the people that love me in their lives. You know, it's always something else. Uh, you know, I've busted up the only car I have. And now I have to, he's like, what the hell am I going to do? Um, and at that point, I'm pretty sure it went through his mind. He's like, I just can't take this anymore. And he had a uh, little 22 pistol. And um, he, uh, hmm. he put it in his right hand and put it up to his right temple and he pulled the trigger. Um, and that was the end for him. Uh, that happened about, you know, I guess I said like 11 p.m. Uh, uh, October 31st, 2012. Uh, you know, what's crazy is that that night I'd spent, you know, with uh, with my wife and my kids, you know, trick or treat and all that kind of stuff like that. And, uh, you know, went to bed that night, not thinking anything. And then um, it was about it was well. It was 8.06 a.m. November 1st, 2012, where I got the phone call that, you know, my brother had committed suicide. And uh, all I really remember about that was, I remember, I mean, literally going numb. I mean, instantly going numb, and I, I hit my knees, like my legs completely gave out and landed straight on my knees and just, you know, just start bawling, crying. And, um, I don't think I probably stopped crying for a good three or four days straight. Um, but at the time I was working, uh, I was managing burgers and blues and I went in, I called Steve, or no, my wife called Steven, the owner, and was like, hey, look, this is what happened. You know, Jeremiah's not going to be at work. And he's like, man, I completely understand. Well, the next day, I went to work. And Steven's like, Jeremiah, what are you doing here? Because he knew the kind of a relationship I have with my brother. He's like, man, what are you doing here? And I was like, fine. I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I need to be here. I need to be, you know, out, I don't need to be sitting here crying tears that I don't have inside me anymore. Um, but the the whole, but the big thing about this part of my uh, of my story, my brother's story, is that um, that my brother had the opportunity to have his uh, his organs harvest uh, harvested, excuse me, and to you know help people out, save people's lives. And I was like, there's no way. I was like, it's not happening. I was like, there's absolutely no way I'm going to let some doctors cut my brother up, take his organs out, and then let some jerk that I don't know sit here and live a life with my brother's organs. I was like, there's no way that's happening. So and, this is, uh, not to interrupt, but I just no, want to make okay. sure we get this, we lay this foundation correctly here. This is bottom for Jeremiah Lorenz. Yeah, that, that November 1st, that morning, that was the worst day of my life, yeah. hands down, no yeah. question. This, so at this point, uh, your mother's gone, mm -hmm. your dad's gone. Yeah, my my father died when I was 24. And and now your brother's gone. Yeah. And uh, so there's just kind of this sense of finality for you. And we haven't brought this up before, but I think it's important to mention here at this point that the even in your numbness. And I think this crazy dichotomy for men mm. that we can be numb and raging at the same time. And your anger, uh, was directed 
towards God or what you thought about God, this is where kind of the fact that you, if God existed, you hated his guts for what you had been through. All that kind of comes to a head at, at this point in your life when your brother hits the bottom, uh, takes his own life, and you're still here. Yeah. Um, that Up until that point, uh, because of the pain and tragedy I'd went through in my life, I... Um, I was I was angry at God. I, I thought there was a God, but uh, you know, I thought God existed. But I, I was like, man, I really hate this dude. <laughs> like the there, man, what like what is going on? Um, so I didn't really put much into him. You know, I mean, uh, I, I cursed him tons of times and was like, you know, how dare you put me through all this? And you know. Uh, you know, all that. And then when my brother died is when I really said my final, like, F you, God. And I was done. And I, and at that moment, I, I quit believing a God existed because I was like, there's no way that this, you know, gracious, loving God that is supposed to be there would let one individual, one man go through all this pain. There's no way God would do that. Now, I got to be honest with you, man. Like I've been following Jesus for a long time, and sitting through this story, I can feel that. I'm kind of feeling the same thing. Like, man, give the guy a break. There's just no way that one person could carry this sort of load. And putting myself in this particular scenario, you've got essentially 48 hours to make a decision whether you're going to let your biggest loss be somebody's biggest gain receiving organs and potentially saving their life out of your tragedy you've got to make some decisions to do good for other people and your initial response is there's absolutely no way i'm going to make somebody else's life better with all the hell that i've gone through there's just no way but something moves in and and changes your mind talk to us about that yeah i I actually had exactly 48 hours uh not not a minute more to, to make this decision because, um, whenever they took my brother, um, to the hospital and they put him in a hospital in Lafayette, Louisiana, um, they were essentially keeping his organs alive. Like he was brain dead. He wasn't coming back. So they were keeping his organs alive for harvest. Uh, I was the only person in my family that can make that decision. And like I said, I was like, there's no way. Um, my aunt begged me, my wife begged me, but I was just like, there's no way. So like I said, I, I, I went to work that day, um, that night, and my aunt uh, called me in the middle of work, and I was like, I'm not doing it. Quit calling me, and I hung up. And I, I guess, I, I, I don't know an exact time frame, maybe an hour or two went by. Like, just something inside me that I still, to this day, I look back on, I'm like, wow. Uh, just completely changed my heart and I picked up the phone and I called my aunt and my aunt's like you know Jeremiah yeah baby what's going on and I said do it she said do what I said harvest his organs and before she could say another word I hung up um because I still I mean even after I, I did it and said it uh I was still blown away that I'd done it I was like, man, did, did I really just do that? And I was like, yeah, I'm okay with it. Um, and, the, you know, then, of course, the doctor had to call me back and we had to do some stuff like that or whatever. Yeah, so um, you, you, your brother ends up, yet again, playing the role of hero. Mm. Only this time is for people that, that don't even know him. 
And what often happens in these scenarios is the, is the people that receive this gift are so grateful, they want to contact the family member that made that really, really tough decision. So you get put in a scenario where you're ready to kind of put this to bed. Uh, you've still got this habit of trying to numb and ignore pain and all that stuff's going on. And uh, through the channel of your wife, who I want to stop and celebrate Tisha here for just a minute, <coughs> is still around, is still there. Uh, is, 13 years, yeah. Yeah, 13 years of support uh, towards you. Even through all of this, her love remains for you. Not to say that there, was, there weren't some difficult days and some times of separation, but she's still around and walking with you through this process of this uh, one of the people that received one of your brother's organs is trying to make contact with you to make peace and say thank you and you, your anger and pain and all that about losing your brother is still there and you refuse to to contact him right you refuse to reach back out to him yeah there was no way i was going to talk to that guy um you know and two things let's backtrack real quick is that my wife was always trying to push me towards god um she always believed in god always had faith and was always trying to push me and uh, it came to a point where she was like, okay, Jeremiah, I'm done. Like, I'm not going to push you towards anymore. I'm not going to ask you to go to church anymore. Uh, and, you know, this happened a, a little while after my my brother had died. But, um, yeah, like a pretty – a couple of years after uh, my brother died, one of the people that uh, got my brother's liver um, – contacted my wife on Facebook and sent her like a, what are they private messages or whatever. And I'm not on Facebook. I don't know this stuff, but anyway, <laughs> so, you know, sent her a private message and was like, Hey, you know, this is who I am. Um, you know, I have, you know, I'm alive today because of, you know, Jeremiah's decision to, uh, let me have his brother's organ. And he was just like, I would be, it's like, before I die, the one thing I want is to meet Jeremiah and shake his hand and tell him how much I appreciate him. And, um, you know, she's like, I, I just want to say thank you and just let him know how appreciative I am. And, you know, my response was like, I don't care. Like, screw that dude. Like, you know, I still, I was just so angry, uh, because, you know, my thought process was like, man, there's these people that are walking around earth today, living their lives, hanging out, could be like, this dude could be, you know, getting hammered and stuff and has my brother's liver, you know, just all those things, you know, I just had all that pain inside of me, um, that I was like, there's no way I'm getting in touch with this guy. And, and my wife begged me, Tisha was like, please, Jeremiah, get in touch with him. And I was like, there's just no way I'm doing it. And I was pretty much dead set on it. So it got to a point where she was like, okay, Jeremiah, she's like, I'm not going to ask you again. She's so like, four, if I remember this correctly, four years go by. Four years, yeah. Four years go by. You find yourself on uh, basically the anniversary of your brother's four, passing. Four years to the day. Four years to the day. Yep. And something, again, moves in you that is a little bit unexplainable, and you say, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to get my wife's phone because I'm not even on Facebook, which, by the way, I think a lot of the hangar men, their respect for you just went up when you said that. <laughs> uh, you say, I'm not even on Facebook, but I'm going to get my wife's phone, and I'm going to find this message. And I'm going to contact this guy. Yeah, and and leading up to that, something I think it's incredibly important that the that the hangerman know that the hangerman know is that uh, leading up to this, you know, you know this uh, this decision I made to go get my wife's phone and and look at this message was uh, the several months coming into that I was like 
immersed in religion uh, in all kind of different religions. There was, I had like this burning desire inside of me to, which now I know what it was, but I had this burning desire inside of me to, to find an answer. Like, why, why did this happen? Like, what is going on? Why did I go through all this? You know, please somebody somewhere makes sense. And, um, so like I said, just studying, studying, studying all these religions. And of course, Christianity always stood up to me, but I was still, you know, I still wanted to like body slam God and was like still so mad at him that, you know, even though Christianity stood out to me, I still pushed it down. But, um, yeah, it was, it was actually, it was 5 a.m. November 1st. It was, uh, you know, it was the one year anniversary of, of my brother's death. And it was 5 a.m. and I got my wife's phone and I found the message. And, you know, I just sent him a message back and I said, Hey, look, uh, his name's Randy Armstrong. He's a great man. Um, and I, I said, Look, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But, you know, this is who I am. I want to get in touch. I'd love to talk to you. Um, you know, if you don't, if you don't want to talk to me, fine. But, you know, I'd like to talk to you. Um, and three hours later, uh, and I gave my cell phone number three hours later, my phone rings at eight o'clock. So pretty much like four years on the dot of when I got the phone call of my brother committing suicide, the phone rings and it's Randy. So Randy enters into the story and, uh, I've met Randy. I've had the privilege of being able to shake his hand and hear this story that you're about to tell straight from his mouth. Uh, and it's incredible. And forewarning, it is supernatural. Mm. And it requires some belief in the fact that there's something out there that isn't us <laughs> that uh, is involved in our life. And, you know, because I know there are men listening to this that they identify with you either not believing in God or being angry with God. But Randy enters into your life and starts to share a story. We now understand why he was so passionate about getting in touch with you to tell you this part of his story that m helps you make the turn uh, towards God. It, it wasn't study. It wasn't your intellect. You're a very smart man, uh, but it wasn't your intellect that turns you towards God. It's this story that Randy tells you uh, about what happened to him as he received your brother's liver. W would you mind just giving us the gift of telling us that part of, of the story? Man, it'd be my pleasure. This is my favorite story I ever get to tell. I, I, I love this story so much. And I'm probably going to ball my eyes out, which I do every time when I tell it. But it's, it's, it's a podcast. We yeah. can't, they can't see you. Yeah, so. that, that's cool. Well, yeah. they'll hear me. No worries. Uh, it's, it's incredibly powerful. So, like I said, uh, he calls me uh, three hours later after I sent the message to him. Uh, we end up having about a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour conversation. And we're talking, we, you know, we're, we're just kind of getting to know each other, what's going on, how you doing. And, you know, he's so incredibly thankful. And he was like, look, I, you know, I, I told him, I was like, man, you know, I, I need you to like make, make sense as why have, cause there's five people walking this earth today that are alive because of my brother. Uh, and, but this one guy was so persistent and wanted to, wanted to get in touch with me so bad. And I'm like, Randy, explain to me why out of all these people, you have been the one that has pursued me most. Um, and he's like, well, I'm going to tell you why I said, okay, go for it. Um, so he said, well, this is what was happening. He was like, um, you know, two to four to six days, something like that from death. He was basically laying in his deathbed in the hospital. He couldn't find a liver. Um, no one had a liver. So he was like, he had told the doctors, he said, look, you know, 
this was November 2nd, okay? This was November 2nd, 2012. He told the doctor, he's like, look, do my paperwork, you know, get me out of here. I want to go die in my home. He had lost like 60 pounds over the last two weeks. Like he was skin and bones. He was on his way to death in the next couple of days. Um, and the doctors were like, you really don't need to go home. He's like, y'all do my paperwork. I want to die in my house. Um, so they were like, okay. So they went out to do his paperwork. And, you know, he said, man, and it, it was taking way longer than it should have. And he was like, man, what's going on? And uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, his doctor walked in and was like, uh, oh, by the way, it was his birthday. November 2nd was is Randy's birthday. Um, and the doctor walks in and says, uh, I have... He was like, happy birthday. I've got a great birthday gift for you. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, we found you a liver. Um, so Randy was like, you know, you got to be kidding me. And they're like, no, uh, we're going to prep you for surgery and we're put, we're, we're doing it right now. Um, so he's like, all right, right on. So they go, they put him in surgery. Uh, they prep him for surgery, put him in, you know, put the gas on him or whatever they do, you know, uh, and put him out and start to do the liver transplant. Well, during his surgery, he has he has this. I don't know if it's a a, a dream, epiphany. I don't know what you want to call it, but he says Jeremiah. He's like, once I went under the knife, he's like, I woke back up in my hospital bed where before I was, you know, skin and bones. I was dying, and he was like, I was back to my normal self. I'm laying in my bed. Nobody's in there. He's like, but I was laying flat back. You know, with my head on the pillow, and he's like, I look up, you know, chin to chest, look up, and he's like, at the end of my bed, I see this tall, you know, dark, handsome, uh, dark-headed man, and he's, you know, he was like, you know, do I know you? And the man extends his hand, he's like, excuse me, um, he said, it's, it's going to be okay, he's like, come with me. And Randy says the same thing to the guy. He's like, hey, he's like, I mean, do, do I know you? And, he sa- and the man extends his hand and just says, it's going to be okay. Take my hand. And Randy told me, he's like, this, he's like the, the man had a, a really deep voice. And I said, okay. Um, so Randy takes his hand and the man takes him out of his bed and leads him down this hallway. And as he's walking down this hallway being led by this man, the man repeats again and again, like, everything's going to be okay. Um, and all of a sudden they're in this room and Randy said it was the most beautiful, white, bright room, not, not a brightness that blinds you, but just like this beautiful white light. Um, he said, but the only thing about it, he was like, you know, I was kind of messed up because he's like, it was the smelliest room I've ever been. It was putrid. It was like the, all the nastiest smells you can ever think of, uh, were there in my nose, but it was just unbelievably beautiful. Uh, and so Randy said, he looked at him. He was like, is this heaven? He said, everything's going to be okay. Well, then Randy turns to his right and looks around and some of his uh, deceased family members that he really cared about were around. Now, who those, who those people were, I don't exactly remember. Aunts, uncles, fathers, stuff like that. Um, and everybody's smiling at him. Um, and Randy looked back at the man and was like, well, he's like, if, if this is heaven, I'm ready to go. And he said, right then, that putrid smell turned into the most beautiful, like, pure smell he had ever smelled in his entire life. Um, and right then he 
woke back up in his hospital or he woke back up and he was still under surgery. And this part is a little, I don't remember exactly, but he saw like his guardian angel or something like that, like in the corner or something like that while he was getting surgery. And the doctors are sitting here like cutting this guy open, doing a liver transplant and he's awake. So they're like pump more drugs in him and put him back under. Um, but then he wakes back up after surgery, and whenever you get a transplant, it's like 60 to 90 days of, like, handful of pills multiple times a day. So, you know, so they won't, you know, so anti-rejection drugs, all that kind of stuff like that. He took one handful for one day. That's it. The doctors were saying, Randy, this is nothing but a miracle. We have never in all our practice and all our transplants ever seen someone get a liver transplant and have to do one day of these pills. And everything was fine, like no rejection. Everything was perfect. It was working just how it should be. And they were like, this is a miracle. Um, so his body accepted it and he you know, went and he was living his life and doing his thing. And uh, a couple of weeks or a month later, uh, whenever uh, someone gets a transplant, they're not it's illegal to reach out to find who you got, you know, family that you got it from or whatever. You can't do that. Well, my aunt reached out to him and said, hey, you know, this is Josh's aunt. We'd love to meet you. He's like, absolutely. So they go meet. So Randy tells my uh my aunt, that same story that I just told you about the man walking and, you know, tall, dark, handsome, deep voice, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, my aunt starts crying and he was like, what are you crying about? My aunt takes a picture of my brother and puts it in front of him. And Randy breaks down crying. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So Randy said, that's the man that was standing at the end of my bed. So my brother who Randy had never in his life seen before. My brother was 6'2", dark hair, a, a little bit darker complected, a very deep voice, a handsome man. Um and my brother was at the end of Randy's bed. And so now my aunt and Randy are both bawling their eyes out because, and, and what's so amazing about the story, you know, I told him, I said, Randy, I said, don't F with me about this. Hmm. I said, you better not be, man. I was like, don't be blowing smoke up my butt. Are you serious? And he's bawling his eyes out as we're talking. He's like, Jeremiah, I swear to you. He's like, I wouldn't lie to you about this. And right then is when God grabbed my heart and I was like Phew. and so <clears throat> and so then it made sense why <clears throat> I'd been searching out this answer like you know please make sense of it all and you know God kept putting himself in front of all these religions that I was studying and was like here's the truth here's the truth because that Christianity kept you know standing out to me and I kept rejecting it and uh then this happens and I was like wow I was like right then I was like man God's real mm. <clears throat> for uh Right then, for the first time in my entire life, I wholeheartedly 
believe that God existed and he was real. So then like three, three days went by where I went to sleep, woke up, went to sleep, woke up, went to sleep, woke up. And I was like, man, I was like, God, please tell me why, you know, my brother died. Like, tell me why my mom died. Tell me why my dad died. And I went to sleep and woke up and it was like, God snapped his fingers and he made me realize why my brother died. Hey man, your brother saved five people's life. He left behind this incredible memory of like all this pain you went through. Your brother is your bright spot your entire life on all of this. So no matter how much hurt and pain you went through, the stories that you cherish the most and the ones that stand out the most are when your brother was there, had your back, always loved you, always hugged you, all, you know, through all of that. And then woke up, oh, you know, why did, you know, why did my dad do what he did and why did he die young and all this? And, you know, why was he the man he was? And, uh, you know, God made me realize that my dad was that way because now I'm able to take from all that pain to be the father that I'm supposed to be. So there's this, um, I don't even know how to do justice to that, honestly, man. Uh, the fact that supernaturally God would enter into your story through Randy's story, through your brother, brother being present for him. Hmm. Uh, there's this verse that Jesus followers talk about all the time, and I'm pretty convinced they don't really know what it means. <laughs> uh, we, we quote it, we say, hey, all things work together for the good. And we, tr- we kind of throw that out to make people feel better who are going through some really rough stuff. Yeah. But listening to your story, that's what I hear. I hear that God's love over you as an angry, hurt, defeated child and young man, uninitiated, fatherless, alone, other than your wife's support, which you were fighting for a really long time. Uh, God moves in and says, any, by any means necessary, I will reach the heart of my son. I will reach the heart of my kid. Absolutely. And he uses your brother to do that. And in a very real way, I think the men listening to this need to hear and understand that God's love for us as men is tenacious. It is unstoppable. Um, things actually do work together for the good. The pain and the tragedy that you and your brother have been through have worked out, although it was a tragic end for your brother, God still used your brother to reach into other men's lives, other Absolutely. men's stories. He used your brother to convince you of the truth of God's existence and the truth of God's love over your story. So I hate to make the turn. I know we could we could sit and talk about this for the next three days, uh, but you've made it back. You've been to hell and you've made it back. Yeah. And you now have a love for God that colors everything that you do. You have children where you have corrected the legacy, the, the horrific legacy that was handed to you has now been corrected. You're being a father for your children. You're being a husband uh, for your wife. Sounds a little bit like Gladiator. <laughs> you're being a husband for your wife. Uh, you're participating in a business in a godly fashion. You are now spreading the love of Christ to the people in your life. I would love for you just to take a second to let these guys know that are out there listening that have been through the hell that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. that there is a back, that there is a place where God can father you, can, can begin to heal these things and can use your story for the good. Yeah. You know, before I do that, I want to, I want to tell all the men out there that are listening to this, that when you give yourself to God fully and start following Christ on a daily basis, it's, it's not a snap 
and glitter and you know unicorns are everywhere and everything's perfect that doesn't happen Wait, no don't burst my bubble there's no unicorns yeah definitely no unicorns okay. and glitter well, all right uh, but, but what i'm trying to say is that you know I, I think a lot of men think that you know oh if i give my life to to god and start following christ that all of a sudden everything's going to be perfect and that's far from the truth you know you said like uh about i've corrected these you know how i raise my children and how i am with my wife well that's not true I am correcting those things. It's a process well every every single day, and I still make mistakes, and I, I still say things that I shouldn't, but I always make sure that I go back and say, God, please help me. I'm a, I'm weak. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm still going to make these mistakes. I don't mean them, but uh, please help me be stronger. Um, you know, so my relationship with my son, my relationship with my daughter is better. Uh, getting better. My relationship with my wife is better. Uh, we, you know, we still struggle, but you know, we we try our very best to lead with God. Um, we're a part of a wonderful church uh, here at Vertical, which we, man, it, Vertical has just done so much for us. Uh, but but it, it all comes back to just giving everything up and realizing as men, it does not make us weak to follow Christ. Christ is not some feminine man that a lot of churches and people have made him out to be. I am much stronger of a man today because I follow Christ and because I can tell people, hey, guess what? I'll lead with Christ. You know, uh, he is my savior and without him, I am nothing. Um, and that's something that I really think men need to hear that no matter how tough we think we are, no matter how much pain we've been through, no matter how hard every single day is that Christ will make it better. He's not going to fix it in a snap. That's, that's not how it works. But if you pursue him and if you pursue him every day, relentlessly, and you give everything you have to him and say, Hey, what can I do for you? What do you want from me? Uh, he, he will change your life. And I'm living proof because without giving my life to God, I'm pretty much a hundred percent sure that I would not be alive today. A difficult childhood full of pain and abuse led Jeremiah and his older brother Josh to a destructive life of self-medication with drugs and alcohol abuse. Through the progression of early adulthood, Jeremiah found himself in a role caring for the brother who was there for him through thick and thin. The roles having been reversed, Jeremiah was able to be there for Josh as he fought the battle with his unresolved pain of childhood. On an unforgettable night, Jeremiah received the worst news of his life, that his hero had tragically died. Hurt angry, lost. Jeremiah had 48 hours to make the most difficult decision of his life. Little would he know that this decision would be the one that changed his life forever. All of Jeremiah's life, his brother had been his hero. In death, it would be no different. Josh's organ saved the life of a man who had eventually tracked Jeremiah down and revealed to him through a supernatural series of events the truth of God's love. Once again, Josh saved his brother's life and set Jeremiah on a path of healing and sharing that same supernatural love of God with the hanger man all over. Thank you for listening to The Hanger. Be sure to leave a rating and share the podcast so we can get the word out.